I don't remember. Have I talked about the idea of right privilege to you before? No, you haven't. Uh, oh, okay. Well, basically, now would be it's... an excellent opportunity to just to share it with our listeners. <laughs> okay. Well, in the Republican Party, you don't have to have an agenda that anybody supports as long as you have an oligarch who will fund it. Mm -hmm. um, you don't have to have a constituency. And that's what this whole Nikki Haley endorsement by the Charles Koch donor network is, is that they've decided, well, we don't like Trump, so we're going to endorse Nikki Haley. They want everybody to make it be some big significant thing. But of course, the reality is, it's not going to move the needle really at all. But they've got this whole orbit. And I know because a lot of people <laughs> that I used to work with and know in, in when I lived in DC in the right wing ecosystem, like these, they support thousands of people, <laughs> Charles Koch and his billionaire friends. And like, there's just this, this complete right privilege that they have, like they don't exist in the free market of employment. Mm -hmm. They don't exist, whether it's in journalism, they don't write things that are interesting. They don't write things, policies that are relevant or useful. They just have their constituency of billionaires. And so that's ultimately what this Nikki Haley endorsement is, is they're trying to say, we still matter. We're still important. And on the one hand, I guess I'm kind of glad that they did that, right? Because I mean, Trump, I mean, obviously Nikki Haley would be a horrible president uh, and <laughs> yeah. you know, she seems to want to go to war with pretty much anyone now. She regularly talks about going to war with Iran and everything she says is nonsense. And yet she still doesn't want to <laughs> directly call herself as a dictator for life. Yeah. And so like, so I'm glad in that sense that they're trying to put some effort into this, but I mean, the reality is the Coke network, they should have done this two years ago. Like if you were serious about getting rid of Trump and what he's done to your party, then th that was the time to be doing this. Like yeah. they should have pushed really hard for getting Trump impeached for January 6th. I mean, it was like, it was obvious literally to anyone that he had betrayed his oath of office by right. at the very least not doing anything for hours. That in it, in and of itself is a high crime. Obviously mm -hmm. that's an impeachable offense. And, and they didn't do anything about it at that time. And that really is kind of the story of the right oligarch classes response to Trump. They just keep doing too little too late every time they think he'll go away on his own. And if he won't, like right. they've never learned that he's not going to go away. He has to be forced out of the spotlight unless he's hospitalized or in the ground or in jail. He ain't going anywhere. Yeah. He's, um, he's like a disease. <laughs> yeah. So it's like maybe a uh, half a cheer <laughs> for this, but yeah, I mean, it's, I don't know. It's, yeah, just it's, there's this whole Republican ecosystem and it's treated with such absurd tenderness 
by the rest of the media, but also even by the Democrats. And that's what I mean when I say that this is right privilege. People, they don't expect anything from Republican pundits or Republican legislators. They don't expect them to be competent. They don't expect them to be decent. They don't expect them to meet any basic standard of reasonableness or ethics. And this is part of why we are in the situation that we are right now. There is so much affirmative action for Republican pundits who aren't racist. And I can say that because I like when I worked like on the, as a, well, like, so when I worked as a producer on the Hill TV show Rising, basically we were always on the lookout for Republicans because it was explicitly a bipartisan show. And so I was always looking for Republican guests who were not racist. Yeah. <laughs> or and Christian. Slickens, huh? Yeah, it really was. And no, it often was. And like, they would oftentimes book people. And like, I remember there was this one guy that they booked, he had, they they booked him as a Republican guest, and he had become infamous for that taking, I, I think his name was Eddie Scary, that he had, had his followed. His last name was Scary? Yes. Uh, yeah, perfect, right? But you know, like he had followed Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez around when she first came into Congress and took pictures of her clothes. Was he the and, guy that would would sort of shadow her and make comments about her body? Yes, that was okay. her. Yes. And those pictures were overwhelmingly of her rear end. Yes. And yeah, and basically him saying, this is not somebody who is struggling with life. Look at these clothes. And they had never seen those remarks from this guy or they had booked somebody like they other people had booked guests who were like christian supremacists or had boosted richard spencer at various points and i would be like you you but, can't but do this guys please stop this <laughs> here's the thing and i feel like this is a thing that we always when we're sort of drilling down get into and sort of it is a matter of the devil being in the details i always just find it really hard when you talk about uh, non-racist people on the on the right or non-racist Republicans because I don't know where you I mean there's levels certainly like uh, <laughs> David Brooks and George Will are better than Tucker Carlson and Rush Limbaugh I don't know but so yeah it's not, not a very timely reference but but <laughs> at the same time at the same time like it depends on what we're calling racist. And I think that we're giving a really wide berth when we, or when you refer to people on the right as non-racist, because I think sure. anyone that's thinking that anyone that's thinking in any sort of serious way about how racism and in particular anti-blackness looks, wouldn't be able to identify a single one of those people. We, again, we, we've gone back to William F. Buckley and talked about that. Like, um, mm, yeah, I mean, I just, I just have a really difficult, I think I, I really struggle when, when you, when you talk about people on the right that are not racist because I don't see them. And well, yeah, yeah. Well, I guess I should, have a, I think if we're going to have nuanced conversations about how anti-blackness shows up, it doesn't show up as Richard Spencer. It shows up as, as David Brooks and uh, George Will and these like erudite writers who actually say Charles racist Murray. shit all the fucking time. Yeah. Well, and I think that's, that is definitely a point I agree with. So I guess when I say non-racist, I mean like 
I mean, again, like you can't really know. But not frothing at the mouth and spouting racist rhetoric. Not making explicitly. Yeah, I mean, that's like that's that's like how America racism all the time, and it is the most reductive, simple. Like, I mean, that's the problem is I think that that's how we talk about racism. And like, I'm sorry, but racism is creative and far more nuanced and much savvier than that at this point. And yeah, I mm-hmm. mean, you have someone like Marjorie Taylor Greene, who's constantly saying racist stuff all the time. But she knows even she knows not to say the the worst stuff out loud. Like we we know how to read between the lines at this point. And we have I mean, obviously, black folks have for a very long time, but I get very exhausted when I hear, I think, white people talk about what isn't racist and what they mean is people that are polite about their racism. And just because you are able to compose a sentence and you know how to, maybe you enjoy cuisines from other places Mm. and you are a consumer of important newspapers and you read lots of important books doesn't mean that changes the kind of racist shit that you're saying and the anti-black shit that you that you say and they say that all the time and that stuff i i would argue is more dangerous than the people that are just saying what they mean out loud i think definitely a lot of black folks would say that they almost welcome not because it feels great but because the transparency of an overt racist is so much better than someone that's trying to sneak it in in a way that is maybe doubly as harmful um, and much more insidious in its uh, the way that it's kind of in our uh, like ostensibly race neutral laws or policies. I mean, yeah. that that stuff wreaks all kinds of horrible damage. I just I get really you know it's a it's a point of real frustration for me because I think that in America we talk about uh, racism in these like really simplistic terms that don't get us anywhere because we don't acknowledge. How, this is like how the whole way that like critical race theory turned into this absurd thing. I mean, it was a, it's literally a framework for understanding the ways in which our a race neutral laws and our institutions perpetuate racism, even if it isn't spelled out. And I don't think we're ever going to get anywhere if we talk about racism in this way where it's like people are burning crosses. Like most people are savvy enough not to do that at this point. And I don't know. It just feels like treading water to me. And obviously it's yeah. really struck a nerve because I'm still talking, but I feel like this is what, <laughs> I'm, this is what I'm constantly sort of writing about yeah. is well, getting well, to the bottom yeah. of what people say. And mm-hmm. I feel like when we yeah, don't yeah. talk about it that way, it just, it just it's, is, it, it's, it's not so the tiring truth. for me. Yeah. It's, it's not, not the full the truth. truth. Yeah. And, well, no, I'm, I'm, I'm actually glad that you did go off like that <laughs> um i think you're you're right about that and ultimately the frustration that i had with that show was that you know, these debates quote unquote that i was helping to arrange they really were a complete waste of time because the republican guests would never say fully what they thought about anything at any point in time they would not put their cards on the table and like that's that really is kind of the underlying problem with our political dialogue is that there's this, the mainstream media has you know, created this and people are familiar with this idea of the, the both sides framework of journalism, but it's, it's, it's worse than that also because you know, the, the Republican party has become so radicalized and so hateful of 
this country and of their fellow Americans, that if you don't admit that up front, you can't really have a meaningful discussion with them, uh, with it, especially with their act. Because like there is, there absolutely is a difference between you know, like a habitual low information Republican voter that doesn't follow the news at all. And there's millions of those people like do not, they never watch the news. They have no idea. Like if you ask them, what does Trump think about X? They couldn't tell you. And so like for them, they just vote because that's what they were used to. Uh, and they don't know what the Republican party became. They really don't because they don't know much of anything. So, but there's a difference between them and the activist class, which absolutely does know what they're doing. And and then further on uh, above them, you've got other people like the campaign consultants, and they know the full truth, which is you know, that their coalition is a minoritarian scheme and dependent on on active virulent racism and Christian supremacism. Like they know that that's the case, and they've known that for many decades. You know, and, right, and, they and even if water. they don't believe it themselves, they absolutely appeal to that because they are they're yeah because they know they, know that they, that's they have what the place to wants. yeah. Yeah, and, and Lee Atwater, the the guy who kind of invented modern day political consulting on the Republican side, especially, you know, he said that our goal is he was saying he wanted to stop Republican voters from being racist, but he would do it by gradually weaning them. Well, off you start of off. He said you uh, start off, and you start off saying busing, mm-hmm. right? And then you know you can't say the n word anymore, so you start making what are these uh, what are supposed to be subtle appeals, but you know what you know that you're appealing to the ugliest side of your face. Yeah, I mean that's and the entire fucking Southern strategy. I mean, like it's that's right. So, but what I'm saying though is that so you know, we'd get these people on and. And they would never have a actual, like, actually talk about the policies that were at issue. They, because they didn't know anything about policy, number one. They were literally there just for their identity. And, and so the discussions were a complete sham. And, like, that was part of why I left that show, because then this is what I was saying about right privilege. The, the, the mainstream press, it doesn't force Republicans to say what they really mean. And but to, when you say and, that those people don't know, and again, I think you're being so generous because I feel you're saying that somehow since Reagan, who, you know, speaking of this week, there was the uh, funeral for Rosalind Carter, who, mm-hmm. because of her death, there was this recirculation of this interview that she did right after Reagan's election and Jimmy Carter's defeat, where she said, I think Reagan, and I might be off by a word or two here, but... She said, I think Reagan allows us to be comfortable with our prejudices. Um, So this is obviously in like 1980. So I'm just curious what part of what would be considered the right or to to sort of even broaden that conservative politics. Who are these people that you think are unaware of what and and what are they voting for? What are they conserving? Mm. I think for a lot of them, I mean, to be honest, a lot of them don't vote, these people. But the ones that do, the ones that do. And I don't so, mean activist, highly vocal ones. Yeah, I mean, yeah, yeah. No, like, for, I, I think for a lot of them, I mean, almost all the ones that I've known, it's just simply that, I, 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 and I, I, there was a guy who phrased it for me one time. He said, well, I'm going to vote for such and such person because that's what the Christians are doing. He literally said that to me. 
And I was like, well, what does that even mean? And well, what but are his, the Christians. What are some of his ideas that you like? And he actually couldn't tell me any of them. He had no idea what this person stood for. He just knew that that's, that that was the candidate that his Christian friends liked. So he was going to vote for him because he was a Christian too. Um, and like it's, and that's why I say like it is the the power of of Christian identity and white identity. They're they're very huge for a lot of people, and they may not even know that they have that. But I think it, that they operate under those things are intertwined, right? Because if we're going to talk about who's Christian in this country, and I know that this we come up, this comes up all the time, but the most religious group in this country is black people, right? There are plenty of black evangelicals. I mean, yeah. I mean really, that, that an outsized proportion of black folks uh, consider themselves either very religious or extremely religious or very religious. That's based on the vernacular used in Poland. Oh, yeah. So well, it doesn't um, make sense. Not, yeah, it well, doesn't make we sense. Have to, then we have to, when we talk about like religiosity and forming that, then we have to talk about the way that specifically that religiosity for what for white Christians, white evangelicals is wrapped in wrapped up in racism and white identity and whiteness and trying to extricate sure. those things in the way that you're set where it's, oh, it's just, well, what does he, he still has a sense of something. He has a sense of why he's not voting for the other party, right? Why is that? What is it the other party represents to him? Going beyond just, you know, sort of my peers are doing this. What is it about the other party that repels him? Well, I guess he's, he was against abortion and... So I, I, again, like what, what I'm telling you is like, there are so many people out there who don't have any coherent framework of politics. They don't understand it. They don't think about it. They don't think about policy. They don't like, I'm and there well were aware there's a I million videos of Trump were... supporters who are interviewed who cannot <laughs> tell you a fuck it, who are asked literally just for yeah. what their favorite thing is that he's done it. They cannot tell you what they do yeah. know and what they do have a sense of, even if they cannot articulate the exact party points or policy points that Trump stands for, is that he represents the continuation of white authority, white supremacy, white identity, white identity, identity being dominant, and ensures that demographic erasure, at least in terms of power, will not happen. They may not be able to, they may not understand that as a series of policy points, but they understand it as an overarching ethos that Trump and the right represent. And they think to, to yeah. try to obfuscate that as like, just like they're just kind of lost and they don't really know. Yeah, maybe they don't know it point for point, but they, they know that, that there is a sense that they have. They are reassured that this is a party that is for them and preserving their interests. And their primary interest is in maintaining the racial order, status maintenance. I mean, they are, they are mm. afraid of losing ground. And that's why, again, it's, it's in the phrases they use. And I know it sounds like I'm, barking at you but i just i feel like i i get so tired of hearing this kind of like whitewashing of why people vote the ways that they do and when people vote for donald trump generally i think and obviously we've talked about how he's winning ground with certain voters of color well, color we'll see how that turns out when the votes are actually cast but i think the overwhelming majority of white people that vote for him yeah, they don't have a cohesive political identity. So when people say they're voting against their pocketbook or voting against their interests, those people don't seem to understand what their interests are. Well, yeah. I, yeah, that phrase, voting against your interests, I think is is kind of offensive to me, actually, when people say that. Because like what people think is their interest 
that's up to them. It's not up to you. What is somebody's interest, right? You know, if, if I'm saying you should like this type of music or you don't know what you're talking about, like I could make a, a recent case that certain types of music are better than others. And because they're more complex or whatever, the instruments are better or more difficult. Um, like that can all be true, but it, you know, that, that has no bearing on what you're interested in that music is uh, as a person. And, but yeah, like I think, uh, and there, there's this phrase and I never read the book, so I have no idea if I'm using it correctly or not, but there's the, that term, the, the long tail about so like, like a concept can exist, uh, and it, at its core, it's one thing, but it, it trails behind it. The people who are come into contact with ideas have different motivations for them, different knowledge about the concept. And like, that's, and that ultimately is the issue. Like that's why Trumpism and Trump is so durable is that Democrats don't really argue against the larger context or perceive the, the, you know, like generally speaking, democratic messaging about Trump tends to focus on, oh, he wants to overthrow democracy. Right. That's generally how they complain about him or message against him. And it's true that he does. But he wants to overthrow multiracial democracy most of all. I mean, that's literally what this yeah. entire backlash is about. Yeah, it like that is the case. But at the same time, a lot of people can't understand that message. And so you have to be able to translate it. They into... could if we were better at messaging it. And and frankly, I don't think America's a very receptive art, uh, audience to it. I think we could mm -hmm. talk about that messaging. I think we don't because I think even like white people on the so-called left have a difficult time digesting that. It takes a long time to understand something that's complex. And like Trump has, you know, the idea, make America great again. That doesn't, that can mean literally whatever you want it to mean uh, for who you are. It's like a Rorschach test, right? Like in the same way that Barack Obama's hope slogan, like what the fuck does that mean? Uh, like nothing in and of itself. It has no definite meaning, but it enables you to build a framework around that you can tell people, well, it means this to me, or it means this to me, or et cetera. You know, like, and since the Obama 2008 campaign, Democrats lo have lost sight of the idea that you have to present a vision of the future in order to get people interested and excited about something. Um, and in part of that vision of the future is explaining, you know, look, this is what we have. We have something that, you know, it's not perfect, but it's so much better than what we had before. And Donald Trump wants to take that away. And his people want to take that away. And this is what it means to you if they do that. Because, you know, telling people abstract notions of, oh, you know, our electoral system and, you know, checks and balances and branches of, like, people just turn that off. They're not interested in it. It reminds them of their high school civics class that they fell asleep in. <laughs> they want to hear something that is inspiring. And, like, that's that's the, the biggest problem that, that Democrats have had since Obama 2008 is that they've lost the capacity to inspire people and they've lost the interest in, in inspiring people and they've lost the interest in explaining themselves and what it is that they want and why they want it and what it means for people if the progress that we have had is taken away. It's not just about, well, the Congress is going to have these procedures for the electoral college or whatever. Donald Trump's 
awfulness and evilness is so bad and so horrible what he wants to literally become the dictator of America. Like it's so horrible and the scale is so immense that a lot of people just can't even believe it's real. And I wish that wasn't the case, but it is. I mean, yeah, I think that's true to some degree. Um, like when I was talking, I was talking to some friends who I think of as politically minded, if not up on every single thing that happens, right? They're probably not talking mm -hmm. at the level that you and I are, but I think about this stuff and like, I was talking about some of his, the talking points that I guess are a little more hidden now because of the blowback that, that they got, but the specific kind of things that he wants to do if reelected. And maybe they didn't know all of those things. Um, so yeah, I think that there's maybe people that don't know the blow by blow of what would be coming, but I think this is just and like so they a don't larger take it symptom. seriously. They don't take it seriously. And so some people are motivated by avoiding terrible things, but other people are motivated by wanting something better. And you have to have both messages and you have to push them a lot. Uh, like, I mean, in the, in the information age, the people who produce the most information are the ones who rule the age, not even the best. Like that's quantity matters more than quality. And I wish that wasn't the case. But it is. And you see that with the political ideologies of younger men versus younger women. Like mm -hmm. when you look at the content that young men are being exposed to on YouTube, it is horrible. Like the political related content is just awful, misogynistic, trash, often racist. Um, and it's having an impact on them you know these uh, the 13 year old boys or whatever they don't have they don't start out with a political ideology you know but they're gradually sort of getting one um, when you look at the polling and the washington post took a lot of flack for coming out with a really absurd uh, editorial a couple of days ago that we, we we've been <laughs> i guess We've been privately sort of you know, making fun of it for the yeah. past few days. But I mean, it's just, it is so horrible because I mean, the, the crux of the article that they said was that basically, you know, there's a the Generation Z women and Generation Z men are politically further apart. And it seemed to be the onus was on that the women needed to just get over it and start shacking up with the MAGA boys. But, but again, the piece explicitly cites the fact that this is the thing that is true among younger white um, mm -hmm. white Gen Z members. And thus, you know, the, well, one, I just want to back up to what you were saying, because I think that white supremacy and patriarchy work in tandem always. So it's not surprising that in the midst of one of the, you know, most vociferous white backlashes that we've seen since as a country that we've seen since the one that ended Reconstruction, we also see this rise in um, misogyny, right? I, none of these things are happening in a vacuum. So they're intertwined to me in this like obsession with falling birth rates and concern about marriage. And again, this fear of like the loss of tradition. Oh, when, we, when people talk about those things, I, I, I don't think that they're concerned about 
what's happening with Latinx or black birth rates or marriage rates. <clears throat> Unless, of course, it's someone on the right who's pretending to care about fatherlessness and thus crime, which is what they equate when they're talking about black folks. But so that was part of one of the things that one of the issues that you and I were sort of texting about because I'd seen what a mm -hmm. person who I'd sort of been thinking about that and they articulated it, I thought, really well in a tweet that <clears throat> the concern over declining marriage rates, which is tied to this concern over falling birth rates, is, is all There's tied. There's an These implicit, white, yeah, white uh, concern in there. Um, yeah. I yeah, mean, the reason why I, Elon I, Musk think... talks about impregnating everything that he comes across and how he thinks that he has a responsibility to do that is, you know, oh, the, yeah. all this quiverful stuff. They're all motivated by the same stuff. Yeah, and curiously, none of the women that he's impregnating seem to be any other race. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Funny how that works. Yeah, and it's, and I, I think that's right, but it's also that there there is an underlying subtext of that they feel like it is, you know, kind of a betrayal on the part of Generation Z white people, uh, because it is in fact the case that younger white people are not voting Republican also. Uh, the majority of them do not vote Republican. And I've talked this distinction between conservatism and reactionism. Like it's, it is, it's such an important distinction because there's a lot of people out there who are conservative, but they don't know that they are and that they, it, it, they they just think that they're moderate, uh, but in fact they're conservative. And you know, and and there's a and a lot of these people work in mainstream journalism, you know, like on the New York Times editorial page or you know, various places like the Atlantic. Like some of them are not white, so like Christine Emba, who is on the Washington Post editorial board and almost certainly wrote that, but we don't know for sure. But like she wrote a book, and and she's she's black, a uh, former evangelical converted to Catholicism. She wrote a book called Rethinking Sex that was essentially saying, you know, you women have gotten too slutty for your own good. And she's done and it for quite a few articles in the recent past where she's sort of polling women has, on yeah. what they're... Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. So, like, th this is up her alley, even if she didn't directly write it. And so, like, th she's an example of somebody who is a conservative but doesn't want to admit it or isn't publicly identified as that. And... The problem with the, that is that the, the, there are so many people who are conservative that they also protect reactionism in the same way, you know, there were people, you know, during the days of the Cold War, that there were some liberals who refused to criticize or condemn the Soviet Union and the many atrocities that they committed. Like, we have that same dynamic now on the, on the American right, um, that there are people that just make excuses for stop people from criticizing the, these horrible ideas. And, we, and we've talked about it on this show before, you know, the, the Republican Party has rebuilt itself into being a party obsessed with controlling women, uh, stopping them from having birth control, stopping them from being able to have abortions, uh, in many cases, forcing them like they want to have school prayer, which would be, of course, dominated by fundamentalist uh, Christians who want to of course, want to control women in every possible way. And so like, if you like, so of course, it's completely rational for a young woman to be like, fuck the Republican Party. I don't have any interest in them. They have no interest in me. And in fact, 
they actively work to oppose my rights and, and take away my, my rights. So, And the more course, that they resist that, which is obviously going to be a turnoff, the more the Republican Party, because they are interested in just like imposing on people fights to oppress them further to suppress that will, right? Like when you said it was a betrayal, it's like, well, or that they view it as a betrayal. It's like, yeah, that's why we've seen this raft of anti-protest laws and anti-CRT laws. I mean, I, I was at an event that Kimberly Crenshaw, who obviously has been in their crosshairs for quite a bit. Um, if you are a, re a listener, you probably already know this, but Kimberly Crenshaw is a legal scholar and she is the person who invented both the um, critical race theory and intersectionality. They often name her by name and they are trying to obliterate her from you know, library stacks and, and pretty much anywhere they can, AP classes. But she talked about the way that the way that 2020 and seeing so many younger white people in the streets was a particularly inflammatory thing for mm -hmm. older white conservatives. And they yeah. what they took away from that was it was the materials that they were reading, got to start banning those. It was, you know, I mean, so yes, mm -hmm. they do consider it a betrayal and they are doing everything they can on so many different fronts to literally legislate whatever they think has caused that out of existence. Yeah, absolutely. And and again, this it goes to this this right privilege like idea, which is, you know, that having horrible reactionary extremist bullshit ideas that are irrational. Like we just coddle them in this society instead of saying, you know, look, if you can't get if you can't get a date because you are an asshole, maybe stop being an asshole. But <laughs> I and I think you just hit on something. I think that's what we do. We do that at every single level, and we do it with whiteness. When we talk about, again, when we absolve people of doing some of the shittiest stuff, but doing it in polite language, it, there's more coddling going on. And I just, you know, in recent years, just writing on this stuff, taking it on every week, I just, it, I am, it angers me more and more to have any part of it. And so I want to call it out no matter how dressed up and nice it seems or how much etiquette is applied to it. And I just I want that to be mm -hmm. a mission that we all take on instead of pretending like what's at the core of so much of this across the board isn't there. Yeah. And I, I absolutely it's important for people to do that. And, but it's also important to you know, we need the carrot and the stick, basically. And you, you do the stick very well, Kelly. <laughs> um, you know, and, and it is absolutely necessary because I, a lot of people that, again, as I said, who have these Republican leanings, like the low information ones, they don't know anything really. But then there are these kind of middle round people. And I used to be one of them that they sort of block off from their mind. They will, they're willfully ignorant about what the Republican Party is and who it's for. Like when I was writing a book about how to improve the Republican Party, you know, I was like, oh, well, I guess I should look at the Christian right finally and see what these guys are up to. And I was horrified. I had kind of walled off myself from them mentally uh, because I didn't want to know <laughs> what they were, what they wanted and, and the things that they were saying. Right. Um, and what a luxurious and so, way to live. And so I'm just... <laughs> Yeah, I, I, no, and, and so I'm saying, so like people like you and others who are out there saying, look, this is what this is really about. Don't sugarcoat it. No, it's this horrible, awful bullshit. That's really important. Uh, and it and it 
will be impactful on some people. And there are people who do it in the sugar coated. Like, obviously, I'm not the person who's interested in building bridges with certain people or converting certain people. Like, if that's work that Van Jones wants, Van Jones wants to do, awesome. More power to him. There have those people. <laughs> I suppose have to exist. I just feel like any there's a certain certain number of people who like you're never going to convert even if they pretend that they're interested in it. And then there's people who, mm -hmm. if they're open and they're listening, who will do their best. I mean, these are th these things are hard. Like. We all grow up within the dominant culture. We all adapt to all these things, whether we realize it or not. It's it's hard to recognize what is what you have and what you don't have. We walk around with blinders that we keep in place because it's easier to live that way. I mean, again, doing one of these AAPF forums, and there was one of the black moms there. Was, you know, there's three women on the panel who had daughters who were killed by police, and I mean, a lot of them have military and police backgrounds, right? And they talked about how they previously didn't really think they'd seen themselves as people who couldn't be affected by this kind of violence because, you know, you were black and you're educated and, you know, buying into this kind of respectability politics stuff. And like, you, you know, there were blinders that for the sake of being able to maintain your sanity every fucking day, you have to keep on. Right. Like you want to put a little di distance or daylight between yourself and the, and the ugliest things. And I get that. And I get how, you know, it's, it's hard to look around suddenly and realize that you feel like you live in a place that you completely don't understand culturally anymore. That is a very human thing. And I think that having like a reaction to that is also a human thing. But I also think that there's like, you know, I just think it's so cheap the way that we talk about it and I'm just exhausted by it. And I got obviously not the person that's going to be the liaise between uh, mm -hmm. communities to to help that but god i think mm -hmm. it's not helping to mince words all the time yeah no i agree like and that is why i, I really do feel like the the black radical tradition is really really important right now because you know the the democratic party in a lot of ways you know especially beginning with bill clinton um, it did it sort of sort of de-linked of the the struggle for for justice because injustice you know is it's multifaceted it is it's a matter of economics but it's also a matter of race it's a matter of sex it's a matter of religion and it's a matter of region you know edu educational attainment it's about all of those things right. and if you if you try to break that then it, then the narrative becomes so much less powerful and that's and that is why they the right wing you know fears uh, and lies about you know the idea of intersectionality so much because intersectionality is not anti-white at all uh, and like if you think that you're you are totally wrong you couldn't be more wrong and but that's why they have to lie about it because it is actually a really powerful idea yeah. and and that when you know and because ultimately you know, just like, uh, I, you know, the idea of solidarity in, in standing up to the Soviet Union, you know, in, in some of the trade unions there, because it was against the law to have a union in uh, the Soviet controlled countries. But but they were only able to, to build that resistance by linking together all these different unions uh, and in Poland. And, and that was how they were able to, to overthrow some of that tyranny uh, and eventually, you know, get it all the way off. That's how it has to be done. That people have to come together, and they have or to. Or the history understand. of labor in this country. I mean, yeah, there's a yeah. I mean, the, our history of labor. If you early twentieth, late nineteenth century, like, look the way it did because there was a like mm. we would have had a much more forceful 
labor movement sooner if people hadn't bought into the things that were used as wedges used to keep them separate, right? I mean, one of the most frightening mm -hmm. things, yeah. I think, was when railroad, railroad workers got rid of those separations. I think that that was a real threat to the power system. They had you know, embedded these ideas as a way of keeping like people apart. And yeah, that works on class, but that works on race too. And I, yeah, I just, I feel like the, I've turned this session into a little bit of a, a rant and I, I didn't mean for us to not get to some of our topics, but it's, it's, yeah, I guess I'm just really, well, no, I'm glad, like, I'm, I'm glad you did thing lately. Yeah, no, I, I'm glad you did though, Kelly, because, you know, like it's, I want to, you know, it helped, it helps refine what we're doing together. Um, so I'm, I'm always glad for that type of conversation, even if I have to edit around it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, like, you're seeing that my, 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 my new, my, idea is more nuanced than these other people absolutely and, and i think that you fully and, get, and it's about I, combating it as, instead of excusing i think you're right. a part of why we do the show together and our friends and talk about things beyond the scope of what we talk about on the show you know as as a person i think you're thinking about these things i think you're nuanced in your thinking and you know you are able to get beyond you know, lots of identity-based stuff or you know, look beyond sort of like forgiving people because of where you once were. And, you know, I'm, I'm glad that you can mm. do that. And that's great. I mean, obviously I, I respect you as a thinker. I just, I, I am tired. <laughs> yeah, and I mean no, that, and it, I mean that deep, in, I mean that in my soul, you know? Yeah. Well, no, it, it sucks having to con continually explain your own humanity and why it matters exactly and that's why i mean i always say i wouldn't i'm obviously not the person that's going to build bridges because i'm not interested in having a debate about whether or not i should exist but <laughs> there are people that are willing to yeah. do that work and bravo for them i think there are people who want to listen i'm just tired of teaching 100 level classes and refuse to do it anymore yeah okay well, i understand yeah, I think maybe I'm just having a, a week where I have very little tolerance for racism or suffering it at all. In any yeah. form. <laughs> yeah, well, hey, you are certainly entitled to <laughs> Next week, I will yeah. be more chill. <laughs> Thank you for li right. listening, though. Yeah. All right, I'm going to hop off. I can't wait to see what the edit of this one sounds like. But <laughs> I'll talk to you soon. Okay. All righty. Sounds okay. good. All right. Stay warm there in New York. Thank you. I'll try. I won't mention the temperature here. <laughs> I, I don't even want to know. I don't even want to yeah. know. Okay. All right. All right. See you later. Bye. Okay. Bye.